0: wonder what you believe this morning. What do you believe? It's a very complex question, isn't it? It's perhaps far too complex to ask on the end of the most depressing week of the year when the snow is falling outside and we're thinking, is my car going to be icy when I go out? It's not, by the way. I can see out there and the snow is melting just in case you we're worrying. But it's an incredibly important question, isn't it? What do I believe? And it's my sort of experience that a lot of people go through life without ever really answering that question. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and this person had grown up in a church, they'd grown up in a Christian family, and they'd sort of, to start with, certainly taken on the Christian faith of their parents. But they said to me, they said, I just don't get it anymore. It doesn't work for me, this Christianity anymore. And so they drifted off. But when they said, well, what do you believe instead, there was just a nothingness, a great big void that they'd left in their lives. Because you see, we all believe something, but we don't always think about what we believe. What do you believe this morning? Because what we believe then feeds into what we value, and what we value then feeds into what? We do. What are your values this morning? You know, people talk about values like commitments or the importance of family or hard work or honesty. You know, all of us believe something and all of us have values of some sort or another. If we don't think about it, then what happens is we just get fed whatever rubbish happens to be out there. Might take a minute for that one to sink in. Over the next few weeks, on um, Sundays, in small groups, in our young people's um, groups from year four upwards, we're going to be looking on what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter five to chapter eight. And can I encourage you to keep reading these chapters? Perhaps not now, because that won't encourage me too much. But when you get home, open your Bibles and read through these chapters. Let them sink into your very being. This is the core of Jesus', if you like, systematic teaching. I'm preaching. These words are incredibly radical, that Jesus says to us. They turn things upside down. You know, if we go through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're not changed at the end of it, then we haven't read it properly. I think it's as simple as that. You know, many people have read these words of Jesus. If you know them, you'll know some of the passages, the one we'll look at in a moment, about the blessed are sayings, and all kinds of different things that we'll come up against. But different people have tried to explain what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and some people have said, Well, it's a manifesto for the kingdom. Other people have said, well, it's a manifesto for Marxism. We can just dish dish that one, (laughs) leave that one over there somewhere. Some people have said, well, this is about the greatest bit of ethics that any human being has ever taught. But if that's all it is, it's also the most depressing piece of ethics you'll ever read because we can't fulfill it on our own. We can't do what Jesus talks about. Other people have said, well, it's just all aspirational writing. This is what it would be great to be like. But actually, what we see is Jesus lived all of what he talked about. So that won't do either. Other people have said, well, it's all about the future. It's not about this life, but it's about what will happen when Jesus returns and the kingdom comes in all its fullness. But that won't do either, because well, as we look at it, we'll see there's some really nitty-gritty, earthy issues that we look at. So here's my go, a description of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about Jesus teaching us about discipleship. It's spoken to people who have already responded to the call of the gospel, about people who have already decided to follow Jesus. This isn't law that we follow in order to reach God. But having responded to the call of Jesus, then this is about what life under divine rule looks like. And one thing that's really important before we even open our Bibles this morning is that we can never separate what Jesus says from the person of Jesus Christ. If we do, we end up down all kinds of blind alleys. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the Chosen One, the Messiah, God himself, God incarnate. He was the one who would live out fully what he talked about. So the first question, what do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Amen. Amen. If today you're not sure whether you believe in Jesus, can I encourage you to explore that question first of all? Go away, pray about it, think about it, read the Bible, come and talk to me, talk to one of the other leaders. Because the rest of this won't make a lot of sense until we answer that first question. And then there's a challenge to us. Only when we believe in Jesus can we start to become the kind of people that Jesus talks about. One writer puts it like this, in the Sermon on the Mount we see our need of Christ and Christ having greeted us sends us back and instructs us how to live. I really like that. So let's dive in. If you've got a Bible there, it's on page 916. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read from verses 1 through to verses 11. 12, sorry. It's entitled, the Introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then the Beatitudes. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Lord Jesus, these are your words. We just pray that as we look at what to many of us are familiar, well-known words that we've perhaps read, preached about, talked about, studied many times, Lord, that you'll just bring something fresh to us this morning. Lord, help our hearts to be willing to receive from you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just skip through to where we were up to with that. Sorry, I'm creating havoc this morning. So let's dive in. Just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, and you get all the symbolism there, so we get the same symbolism here of what's going on. Jesus ascends the mountain with his disciples, and he begins to teach them. And what he does is he sits down to teach. Rabbis used to sit down to teach. It was a sign that you had something useful to say. That's why I always stand when I'm preaching. So he sat down because he felt that people were going to listen. He was going to teach, and they were going to receive from him. Now, Jesus begins teaching. Now, I can remember sitting through classes at Bible college about how to prepare talks and how to teach and preach. I remember this one lecturer said, when you're preaching, always start off with something that you'll capture people's attention with. So, you know, give it a joke, a funny story, show a picture, a video clip, whatever it is. But you need to grab people, otherwise you'll lose them might lose them anyway, but that was his point. Grab them at the beginning. But Jesus, if you notice, doesn't exactly tell us a joke at the beginning. He doesn't show a video clip, but instead he turns the world upside down. And he tips our whole value system upside down in these opening verses. Because these blessed are saying, these nine beatitudes, these things that it means to be favoured in God's sight. You know that word blessed there? It has a rich meaning to it, it's about being blessed, it's about being favoured by God, it's about being flourishing in the eyes of God. And so we get these sayings, and each one is then followed by a declaration of what happens to the kind of people who are like this. These are not promises in the sense that we can say, I want to claim this as my own, nor are they gifts that we should go around saying, "I, I want this gift or I want that gift. But what they are is they are characteristics of a person whose life through grace is being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the characteristics that God says, as followers of Jesus, over time we should start to demonstrate. We should start to live out. And this is serious, isn't it? This is serious stuff. These are serious characteristics of what the Christian life should be all about. Because so many of these characteristics that Jesus will talk about are totally contrary to both the time when Jesus lived, the the sort of culture around his day, and also the culture of our day. Look at verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I don't know about you, but do you want a happy, peaceful, relatively stressed, free life? Yeah? I think we're all there, really, aren't we? John Calvin, who perhaps wasn't famous for being the most cheerful of reformers, said this. He said, most people believe a happy or a blessed person is one who is free from annoyance. I like that phrase, free from annoyance. Attains all their wishes and leads a joyful and easy life. You know, perhaps your idea of an easy life is a day out on the golf course. Perhaps it's the idea of put the fire on, ordering a takeaway pizza, watch a movie, and switch off from life. Perhaps it's the thought of having a life with good health, good friends, and as few worries as possible. And if those things happen, we may think, well, God's blessed us. God has blessed us. But in God's economy, as we go through the Beatitudes, those tables are turned over. Totally turned over. It's the poor in spirit, God says, who are blessed. The poor in spirit, what does that mean? Well, this doesn't mean the poverty-stricken. It doesn't mean those who have nothing physically at this point. But it's rather those who deep inside have a complete and utter dependence on God. Who know that on our own we just live in poverty. But with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit inside us, then we live a very different life. The emphasis here is not on the eye of human success, but on actually knowing our desperate need Of Jesus as Savior. Are you poor in spirit today? Do you know your need of Jesus Christ? And then it goes on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, I always struggled with that. What on earth does that mean? Is this about bereavement? Does Jesus really say that those who suffered bereavement will be blessed? Well, actually, that isn't the meaning of the word mourn in that setting. What it actually means is more to do with those who mourn over their sin those who are in a place of deep, deep repentance before God, knowing that we've sinned, knowing that our lives are sometimes full of rubbish, and those are the ones who will be comforted. The Christian life is a call to a life of of joy and victory, isn't it? Jesus has risen from the dead, and we all look so excited by that this morning. (laughs) Let's say it again. Jesus has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's give it a bit Pentecostally this morning, <laughs> shall we? Preach it, brother. Preach it, brother. <laughs> Jesus has risen from the dead. We'll have one more go. <laughs> and because of that, you know, the Christian life is a life of celebration. The church needs to be a place that regularly celebrates the amazing good news of the coming kingdom. But actually, I wonder if sometimes the contemporary church, we tip too far into celebration, that we forget lamentation. That we actually forget that we are broken, fallen people in need of a saviour. And that actually, we can't be blessed by just having the happy smile and singing the victorious songs all the time, although we do need to do that as well. But that actually there are times when we need to be broken before God. We need to weep of our own failure before God. Here's a quote from John Stott. I love this. The truth is there are such things as Christian tears. And too few of us ever weep them. When was the last time you wept over your own sin? When was the last time in church we wept because we realised that the price of our forgiveness was the cross? When was the last time we were broken in front of the Lord? Because what does Jesus say? Those who mourn are those who are comforted. Not the self-satisfied, not those who think that everything is going well, not those who think actually we're doing okay, but the broken. They are the ones who are flourishing in God's sight. So we move on, verses 5 to 6. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The meek. What does the world tell us? Who who are flourishing in the world? It's not the meek, is it? Meek people tend to think of as quiet, unassuming, you know, sort of weakened and really not very forceful. We're told, actually, it's the powerful who are the flourishing. Those who have control over things. Those who can make decisions. Those who are up there with all those kind of attributes. But actually, this is about meekness before God. Submission before God our posture both before God and before other people and the result Jesus says it's inheritance inheritance of the earth because these are the very character traits that Jesus showed when in meekness he went to the cross and suffered for our sin then he goes on to talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness doing the right thing That means in our own own life, doesn't it? Do you hunger to do the right thing in your life? Do you hunger to do what God would want you to do? Or do you just do your own thing and think, well, we'll see if God likes it afterwards? But actually, this goes beyond just our own life as well, doesn't it? You know, over the years, it's been Christians who have often changed the culture of the land in which we live. You think of Wilberforce and Wesley going back centuries. People who have said, actually, the way things are is not the way things should be. People in the modern-day world who go against modern-day sort of sex um, trade and sort of modern-day slavery and say, actually, in Jesus' name, this is not okay, but we'll stand up for righteousness. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy in a culture that wants to do other things. But Jesus says it's those who want to do the right thing who will be filled, who will receive the Holy Spirit, who will know what it's like to walk in the values of the kingdom of God. There's a lot in these verses. I'm conscious that we're just skipping through them. So what I want to do just for a moment before we do the next ones, is just pause and just spend a moment, just inquire quiet, and think, is there any of these things that we've talked on so far that actually Jesus is challenging you about? To say, actually, I'm not like this. And Holy Spirit, will you transform me and help me to become more like that? So let's just pause just for a moment. Then I'll pray, and then we'll move on. So let's just in the quietness. Half a minute, let's pause. Lord Jesus, these are the people you call us to be, the characteristics you call us to have. Help us in submission to align our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus moves us on. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What does it mean to be merciful? Does anyone want to give me an answer to that? What is mercy? What is mercy? Anyone? Not treating people as they deserve, deserve. yeah. That's a good answer. Any other aspects to to what what that could mean? I think that's a... Generosity, Generosity, yeah. Kindness. Kindness. Having empathy. empathy. (laughs) Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Thank you, Marilyn. That was the, the one other word that I wanted, forgiveness. Mercy is all of these things, isn't it? It's about being kind-hearted, generous, forgiving. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew six fifteen, Jesus will say, But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And what Jesus is saying really here is that those who have a merciful nature are the ones who God in turn shows mercy to. The same way that those who are forgiving are the ones able to receive God's forgiveness. But I think as we talk about forgiveness, there is a real danger for us as Christians. And it's worth just reflecting on, on this for a moment. I don't want to just skip over this too quickly. I don't know, how do you find forgiving somebody? Do you find it easy? I know I don't. You know, if it's something straightforward, then fair enough. I can probably do that quite quickly. But if it's something difficult, if I've been wronged, or if I know that somebody else has been wronged and, you know, this forgiveness is needed, then I really struggle with that. I find that really hard. I don't find it easy sometimes to show people mercy when I think actually they've done the wrong thing. I find it really difficult. And sometimes it's even more difficult if I know that I'm the wrong one who has done the wrong thing. And I actually need to learn to show myself mercy or myself forgiveness. I don't know if you find that in your own life as well. You may be sat here today and you may be thinking, well, that's me. You know, I'm struggling with this very thing at the moment. It's real and it's raw. And sometimes I think as, as Christians we, we can sort of give the perception that actually forgiveness is all about going to the light switch and flicking it and saying, Now I've forgiven, everything's wonderful. Life goes back to you know smiles and the fixed grin and whatever else. But actually forgiveness is really tough. You know, forgiveness of our sins was so tough that it sent Jesus to the cross. I don't know why we ever think forgiveness should be something that we just flick a switch on and is a really easy thing. Yeah, forgiveness is often a really long and painful process. There's been times in my own life when I've had to sort of say, I need, I need somebody else to help me with this. It's not that I can't forgive, it's that I don't even want to forgive. You know, I'm even a stage further back. And sometimes, you know, we, we just need our hearts to, to melt in front of God, don't we? And we can't always do that on our own. So today, if you're here and actually you're thinking, I'm really struggling with forgiving somebody, share it with somebody in your small group. Go and chat through with somebody in the prayer ministry team afterwards. Come and speak to one of us as leaders. Not that we've got the answers, but just that we can pray and do that together. Jesus' words here, you know, they're not words of condemnation. They're not words to, to point the finger and say, you must, you must, you must. But rather, I think these are words of transformation. Words to lead us to a way of living that more reflects Jesus who died to save us. Jesus, who said when he was hanging on Calvary, what did he say? Father, forgive, for they do not know what they are doing. I believe Jesus invites all of us on that journey of forgiveness today. This is the destination point that Jesus talks about here, about giving mercy and then receiving but perhaps today, some of us just need to start off on that journey. Leading on from mercy, um, I think it's very deliberate. I think all of these follow on incredibly deliberately in Jesus' thinking. And it's the pure in heart um, that we get to next. The pure in heart is see God. Sorry, we've got a bit of a, a theme of referring to the reformers today. So it's, we've had John Calvin, we've now got Martin Luther. Um 500 years ago or thereabouts, he started to, to question some of the things of the medieval church. And he was quite an earthy person when he wrote about what he thought about things. If you, if you don't want, to, if you don't like being offended, don't read Martin Luther. He's quite coarse at times. So this is a sanitized version of what he says about being the pure in heart. He says, you may really stink. It's always a good start, isn't it? He said, you may really smell. You may be out working in the factories or the fields. You may look atrocious on the outside. And yet inside, you may have the purest of intentions towards God and towards other people. You see, I think we live in a world that has got that the wrong way around. I think we live in a world that says, providing you look okay on the outside, then everything's fine. It doesn't really matter what's going on inside. That's up to you. But providing you're okay on the outside, you know, if your hair's all right, if your clothes are all right, if your shoes are all right, then... That's what matters. And you know, we can easily put on masks, can't we? I don't mean literally put on masks, but have those kind of fronts that we put on that says, you know, it's church today, so we put on holy mode. We say the right things, we use the right words. But perhaps you've been out for a party, or perhaps you've been out with friends out for a meal, and you put another mask on. You wouldn't use the same language that you would use in church. You might say different things, you might have a different persona. You might put a mask on that says, I'm okay, when actually inside, you know you're anything but. But Jesus cuts through all that. He cuts through all the nonsense and said, actually, it's those who are pure inside who are seeing God, who are flourishing in God's size. No more hypocrisy, no more masks, but just growing to be more and more like Jesus. Is your inner life at peace with God today? Is your heart pure? Or are we still having the conflicts between the inner and the outer? We move on. I'm not going to read all that, but this is the final sort of three, uh, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the insulted. First one sounds nice, doesn't it? Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, it's good to be a peacemaker. I think we'd, we'd probably agree with that. But actually, again, it's massively countercultural. When Jesus was writing this, he was writing, well, speaking these words, he was, he was speaking them to a society, to a culture, where war was the thing that people thought was good. If any of you did um, history at school, you may have done about the Roman Empire. You may have come across a phrase called Pax Romana. Anyone come across that? Yes. The peace of Rome. And what it was, was that everywhere from Hadrian's Wall right down into modern-day Iraq, there was peace, well, so-called peace, because the Roman emperors had destroyed everything in their path, and so established Roman rule the whole way round. And if you go into Rome, even today, you see the triumphal arches where the Roman emperors had come and built a monument to their own greatness, to say, "Wasn't I amazing in defeating whoever it happened to be?" But they weren't peacemakers; they were destroyers of other people. And yet what Jesus did is he inverts it totally and said, "Not blessed are those who destroy their enemies, but blessed." are the peacemakers. Those who desire real peace. Those who desire an end to violence, an end to conflict. Those who seek reconciliation. Paul will go on to say that we are ministers of reconciliation, both with God and with one another. But you know that's not easy. It's not easy to be the peacemaker. Do you know why? Because it doesn't always work. And this is what then Jesus goes on to say. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. They may be doing the right thing, but actually the receivers, the people who receive the peacemaking, don't take it. If we were to interview Christians today from, say, North Korea or the Middle East or places where the church is under deep oppression, they would be saying that actually being the peacemaker, doing the right thing carries a massively heavy price tag. Following Jesus is not the call to that easy, happy life of eating pizza in front of the fire. Something very, very different. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things. We're flourishing when Jesus is at the center of our lives. We're flourishing when actually we put the values that Jesus says in front of anything else. And then we get the nice positive at the end. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. The final piece of the jigsaw is actually that we're not just living for the here and now, are we? But we live life with an eternal perspective that actually one day Jesus will become all in all and we will reign with him forever and ever. And so I want to ask you those questions we started with. What do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus today? If so, what's it doing to your values? What's it doing to them? Three questions. I'm hoping that everybody got handed a piece of paper as you came in. Chris and Alison have some pencils that they're going to distribute in a moment if you need one to write on them. But I thought we'd do something a bit creative today. If you didn't get handed a piece of paper... No? No? Write on your notice sheet. There should have been some bits of paper handed. Some people have got them. I don't know where they are. Don't worry about them yet. Just let me finish off what I'm saying. Otherwise, we'll, we'll lose totally what we do. Um, what I want you to do on this piece of paper is to ask, answer that third question. This is between you and God. Nobody else will ever read what you've written. You can screw it up and put it in your pocket or throw it away or whatever. <laughs> But actually, in light of what we've been looking at today, what is Jesus challenging you to change in your values, in your beliefs?